0: In property management, we—it's uh, very difficult to make everybody happy. You know, you're either making the owner happy and the tenant mad, or the tenant happy and the owner mad. It's—it's it's very hard to be in that middle ground to keep everybody satisfied.
1: I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, the Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Hey, I just wrapped with Aaron Cooper. We talk shop about processes, tech, building a sustainable organization that allows you to move at a high speed without sacrificing your quality of life as the owner. Check it out. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Today, I have Aaron Cooper on the show with me. Aaron, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're just jumping right in here as usual. For yeah. those that don't know, tell us a little bit about your background. How do you get into the industry? So I started as an investor, really. So
0: uh, I, my wife and I just took advantage of the foreclosure crunch, bought a bunch of foreclosures, and... Uh, kept going from there and then we decided, well, we don't really want to do this ourselves. So we started to, got the great idea to open a property management company. Then I got my license, then I became a property manager and we uh, took off from there and
1: never, haven't looked back since. Well, here we are. So let's fast forward to today. How many uh, units are you managing? What are the asset classes? How many team members? So uh, we
0: manage about 325 doors, something like that. we have a mixed kind of hybrid model. So we're 50-50 of local um, employees and remote. So we have about five remote and
1: including myself, four local. So how long have you been in the game for? About seven years now. How has your business evolved over those seven years? A lot. <laughs>
0: um, we started, you know, just like everybody else, 10% here and just just copied really. Um, and then, uh, over the years, I, the first few years, I kind of learned what I liked as an investor and, uh, as a property manager, like I just learned that I did not like the lower tier of property management. It's just not my thing. Uh, I have friends that've made lots of money doing it. That's just not my thing. So we went to a flat rate almost out of frustration because everybody was clicking on my Google review or my Google, uh, uh, AdWords for wanting quotes and everything. So I came up with the idea, let's just do a flat rate, advertise it. If your property is under a thousand dollars, they won't click on my link. And, uh, it was a way of just filtering out the stuff that I wasn't interested Mm. in and wasting money. So, you know, we've gone from there to now we have a three tier model, a lot of from you guys, actually, uh, over the years, listening to you guys uh, uh, discuss different options and different ways of doing things. And um, it's been really successful for us. Um, Pros and cons, obviously right now, it's not a great with a a rent skyrocketing right now. And so the percentage would be nice, but it keeps us just more even keel, very easy to budget, very easy to plan, uh, very easy to forecast.
1: In terms of some of the shifts that you've seen Mm -hmm. in the industry, What's really been impactful in terms of innovation and change in your business over the last, let's say, 24 months specifically? 24 months. I mean, we we dove into remote team members
0: three years ago, mm-hmm. um, and that's been just tremendous. Was it great out of the gate? Uh, Did you have to cycle through a few before you found a winner? No, I mean, my first one, well, I hired two basically at the same time. One of them was great, and she was just doing back-end accounting stuff. She's not here. My other one, um, Leo, was the other first person that we hired, and he's still with me, and he's, like, my right hand, and he actually has gone through everything from answering the phones is what he started with, just admin duties, and now he runs maintenance completely and has a team of remote uh, employees that works with him coordinating everything.
1: So remote, what else over the last couple years? BDM, finally hired a BDM. Yeah, I finally, listen to you guys. <laughs> what What did that feel like? You know, you say listen, but at the yeah. same time, the reality yeah. is it's contextual. For yeah. some people, it's a fit; for some people, it's not. What felt like what lined up to to put you in a position where you felt like it made sense now to pull the trigger? So it was a unique situation. I was actually
0: uh, taking a look at an investment home to buy, um, and there was an agent there, and we got to talking about rentals and everything, and he was looking there to make it an Airbnb, and uh, He's like, actually, my broker's getting ready to uh, leave, closed up shop, and they had 30 or 40 properties. So I ended up acquiring those 30 or 40 properties. At the same time, their main property manager is now my BDM. So I kind of brought her in. It was, that's what she was, was a BDM, really. Um, And so we acquired that, and it just gave me the, um, I don't know, it was easy. It It was the confidence like, okay, I've got this new revenue stream of all these properties just overnight. That paid for my BDM, the salary, and it gave me the confidence to be like, okay, let's let's take this plunge. Um, and yeah, but since then, I, I regret every day not
1: doing it years before because it's taken off my plate. That's what I did. Yeah, that's a really interesting sentiment. You regret not doing it years before. For a lot of folks, when they hire a BDM, it can be a mixed bag. And when you think about the factors that correlate there to success, Mm -hmm. there's a couple of things that come to mind. One is having opportunity, i.e. lead flow. What did the marketing function, marketing pipeline flywheel look like at the point that you made this hire? Yeah, so um, our marketing was nothing
0: other than myself. Um, Some Google AdWords, we just started getting into the SEO. We redid our, our website my big plan was to really push for realtor referrals that was going to be the the target going out to the you know to their offices visiting uh networking and about two months into it COVID hit, so kind of you know changed everything um and so we actually looked with you guys with the profit coach stuff um and um we got angela involved in like scale club and and all those fun things and it's really helped us um create our playbook Um, which is what I wanted because I didn't know how to teach that. I just could do it.
1: That's just what I did. You know, I knew how to sell my company. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that anecdote. Yeah. The quote here is the strength of the owner is the weakness of the business. Yeah. That's a direct quote from Jeremy Pound, friend, former business partner. Yep. When you made those strategic investments, what were you expecting to to get? I love that you made those investments, but what was in your mind's eye and, and what actually came of it?
0: Yeah. So, um, so for us uh, and me specifically, it was, the, I guess the accountability, you know, a lot of it was the accountability and, and the teaching. I had no idea how to teach or train somebody to be a, uh, you know, a sales manager, BDM, um, metrics performance. Uh, that's just, I know that's not my strong point mm-hmm. and bringing on, that was part of my reservation of bringing on a BDM to start with was I knew that was not going to be my strong point to, sure. to oversee that and manage that. So by having, um, you know, them help us and coach us through. And it kind of, we, just, we started at the same time we brought her on. We started with that and the training and building our playbook. And then uh, we kept it going with the, um, uh, the monthly calls for her or the weekly calls for her for the last you know, year or so until we
1: kind of weaned ourselves off of it. Yeah, I know that Renscale has a ton of appreciation for Angela. I've heard heard them sing her praises in particular. So you have the BDM piece in place that's Mm -hmm. allowing you to kind of step back from that function a bit. What have you done with that marginal headspace? Where have you applied your focus? So I am working my
0: way into uh, the into the, the, the background, really. I, I'm, I'm not one that wants to be the face of the company. I don't want to, I don't need my name out there. I don't want to be uh, in the forefront. The company is the company. And um, I'm working to take steps back. Like I actually enjoy, not because we're sitting here, but I actually like creating the processes and stuff like that in Lead Simple. Like I actually have fun with that. Um, I like that background stuff to kind of shape and build how and what the team is gonna execute. So that's, I just know that that's what I like. And so that's what I'm spending more and more time doing. And,
1: um, that's yeah, a, that's a useful thing to like, yeah, I'll tell you, every owner has their guilty pleasure. Mine graphic design, believe it or not, <laughs> I really enjoy it. Yeah. Is it a business priority? Is it of value? Is it a good use of my time? Not necessarily. Yep. Convenient that yours is (laughs) process. That's a really value
0: added. I I never realized that was something I would actually enjoy, actually.
1: Really? So prior to implementing the the workflow stuff
0: with Lead Simple, you can ask anybody on my team. Details are not my thing, but but building out the general structure of it is what I like to do. Like I
1: can get what's in my head out. Great. So this is, I want to dive into this. This is fresh for you the process implementation. What, What did you think was going to happen? What were you trying to get? Out of it, it's not enough to just say, "Well, we're going to use some tech, we're going right. to get some leverage." What was the specific outcome, and what's been required of you to get that outcome? So for me, I mean, we tried
0: like Trello and Asana and the different systems like that, and we, we experimented with them, and, and some work. They did well. Yeah, a lot to come. Up. Um, Podio was one, mm-hmm. which was just way over my head. Um, it was. The the learning curve was just brutal for me. I mean, I tried, you know, I actually implemented it and and, and started building and it's just too much of the building side of things. Um, But what I liked about that system was putting my policies down, you know, I uh, And when we first started, we had our little policy and procedure manual that gets dust and literally is, it's still sitting on one of my shelves. You know, it's, that's just how we work. You know, it's, we're uh, a people game that the books don't really do well it's for It's antiquated
1: us. as soon as it's done. Yeah, yeah.
0: It was just a waste of time. So um, that was one of the things that I really liked that I did not like about Trello and some of the other options out there for the workflow was I can have the instructions. And then it kind of just parlayed with the remote team members and my own just controlling. I want to know that they know what they're doing and and have, have the information in front of them as it comes up. And so that has been really, really helpful, bringing somebody on.
1: What is, if you could just be a little bit more specific, like yeah. what exactly is the utility of having that, the context that you're referring to? Yeah.
0: So, um, you know, just like, uh, like lease renewals, let's just keep it simple. Um, you know, what the process is, the communications out to the owner, the communication out to the tenant, the timing of it, um, you know, just keeping everything moving and having a process for them to actually follow instead of just what's in my head, you know, so we have, you know, the timing of everything is, is really the the critical aspect
1: I think for us. What have been the lessons learned in terms of granularity? Some people get really wooden, very literal. other folks keep it really high level. What's the right balance in your yeah, world?
0: You can definitely get too, too detailed with any of these process systems. Um, it's just, uh, if you get just into that level of uh, detail, you just create more problems than you're solving, I think. So for me, um, I'm probably flirting with that line. Um, I get pretty detailed into my processes, but um, at the same time, you know, it's not too much where the staff can't, you know, make their own judgment calls and it gives the flexibility. So, I mean, for me, it was just trial and error. You know, I would go through a process and kind of build it out and get it in my head. I'm like, okay, this is way too much. Like the, this is just too detailed. It's, it's, it's just too much. It would would take too much time for them to read or go through all of this to actually execute what they need to be executing.
1: One of the classic laments is that my staff doesn't build, doesn't use it. Yep. I spent all this time. Yep. You know, somebody has the disposition like you, you have this beautiful thing, you've built the Sistine Chapel and lo and behold, people would rather, you know, eat at Arby's. Yeah. How do you actually, how do you handle that conversation at a high level in terms of motivation and then the, the compliance piece? So I think for me, I mean, we, we're really compliant.
0: My staff does a really good job utilizing the tools, but a part of that was bringing them in on the initial stage of actually deciding if we were going to utilize it or not. In my head, I had already made the decision in my head, but you know, I, I, again, if they were just adamant, they hated it. We probably wouldn't have done it, but you know, bringing them in and that in that decision. Yeah. And that decision-making interviewing, you know, the different process systems and the different um, you know, the features and, and testing it out. Um, they, they chose it. You know, they got to have some buy in on that. Um, and then the, the next stage of that is just the daily upkeep of it. And so what we do is we have a weekly meeting staff meeting. And one of the aspects is we're looking at how many late uh, tasks do you have <laughs> in front of everybody, you know, we sit there. Leadership I'm, is attention. The things right. you focus on get done. Yeah, yeah. So it's just nobody wants to be on that. You know, oh, I have the, twenty the tasks. List. Yeah, I'm usually the worst one. So uh, you know, it's 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 okay. There's you know, there's and we're fine tuning it too. You know, it's not um, the end all be all. It's either later. It's not. There's still we're still building it. We're still tweaking it. There's so much that uh, I want to do with it. So,
1: you know, I'm a numbers guy. My business profit coach is all about exposing the actual. Financial reality, stark, unvarnished from hope or aspiration. When you think on a financial level, the organizational impact that this has or could make, what is it?
0: Uh, I mean, for me, I know it can replace at least one to two full-time employees, remote teams. Which which
1: is, there's a choice there. There's like Mm -hmm. an actual... you yep. know, just getting rid of someone no. or there's the growing into that additional yep. capacity without adding bodies. So and it's, it's even more so for me that, yeah,
0: it's, we didn't lose anybody. It's just given us the, um, the bandwidth to actually bring on more. And this is the one thing that, we, we, that I preach with my staff. The whole reason that we're automating and adding process and things like that is to provide us more time. And we should be providing more time with our, with our owners or our tenants that need it you know, not wasting our time firing off a routine email, but spending that extra time that we've gained in the customer service aspect. So I know we, everybody can get really bogged down into automate everything and, you know, remote everything. And it's very easy and it's very appealing as a business owner. It's like, I don't want to deal with that. But, um, but the whole idea that we always go back to and we talk about it a lot as a team, it's like we're doing this so that we can actually have the time to spend on critical situations or, you know, personal situations or the one off crazy stuff that shows up in our in our world. So spend more time with the people just more quality time with our owners or with our tenants or whatnot
1: let's talk about quality time with owners in particular Mm -hmm. different organizations have different philosophies around communication format cadence etc you've been in that seat you are in that seat in your mind what is the most important thing to keep in mind when communicating with your owners
0: Oh man, that's a good one. Um, you know, for us, it's, it's the consistency and, you know, we just try to constantly be the bearer of news. It may be good. It may be bad. You know, they, when I usually get on the phone, they usually don't want to see my number. They usually know that it's not going to be good because I usually handle the fires, you know, the floods and the, you know, insurance claims and things like that, that may be coming up. But, um, you know, just the consistency, I think, you know, the owners want to have something they can depend on rely, rely on. So even just the communication about, you know, okay, it's time to renew, you know, we're starting the process, what is that process? And just but for us, I mean, that's, you know, 300 emails, you know, a year, or one a day about the same exact thing. So being able to automate that auto trigger, it, I don't forget, you know, it, it automatically well. Taylor, my, my leasing agent, she doesn't forget, you know, it automatically fires and triggers. And so that's just given us the consistency with the owners and it does keep them engaged
1: a lot more. So when you say consistency, uh, totally makes sense. We think about just a standardized process where there's yep. no surprises. Expectations are managed, at least on that level. In terms of handling those fires, those calls that you're having to make, how do you, how do you handle, how do you deal with... People in a state of peak emotional stress. This is one of the unique characteristics of this business. The yeah. possibility of dealing with someone that is screaming, somebody that is irate—it's just—it's more probable than in other industries, sure. other businesses. How have you conditioned yourself and your staff to interact in those really volatile moments?
0: You know, I mean, I, I feel like we're still small enough as a company to, it. we take it personally, you know, the, we did have a house fire recently, you know, um, and like a true house fire, like the house is gone pretty much, you know, half, wow. half the house is gone and, you know, that's not a pleasant phone call to make. Um, but with the tenant or the owner, you know, that whole situation, nobody was hurt or anything, but, um, you know, just, just, Just uh, empathy, you know, really and actually truly meaning it, you know, and having the time to go sit down, even if it's not obviously a house fire, but something more simple. But um, but just having it be in a more personal aspect for us is is, you know, it's absolutely critical for that for an owner to have that trust in you, too. Um, Again, as a landlord for myself, I relate to owners a little bit easier, I think, than some. I mean, I know a lot of our brokers out here are are uh, investors and have it, too. But I think that's really important and very helpful as well. Um, you know, I can give my first hand advice because I've had some pretty bad stuff happen to homes um, and total of my own properties. And so I can relate, too. And so I know what it's like, you know, um, and and discussing that. And then but also having the confidence to go through the process with them, because a lot of these owners, you know, the fire, for example, they're an out of country investor. Um, no idea how an insurance policy or, um, uh, insurance uh, claim works, you know, but just getting on the initial call, this is what happened. Everybody's good. Here's what's next, you know, having that confidence and the knowledge to just kind of outline, okay, these are the next steps. You know, this is what we're going to look for. This is, we're going to make sure you have the rent loss protection and your insurance so your rent's covered and just answering the questions before we get there. Um, So, I mean, if you mix, you know, the empathy with the confidence and knowledge of what actually Mm -hmm. needs to happen and, and, and outline a timeline for them and give them the expectations, people are usually kind of go through the, the freak out and then
1: chill out a little bit and
0: understand and, and, and are pretty good with it.
1: That was a great answer. (laughs) Well, good. How do you think about wealth creation generated via your management company? You have the awareness, you've you've clearly talked to folks at Profit Coach, you're thinking about profitability, which is a great step. Yep there is a limit to the amount of cash flow that this kind of business can produce uh, and it's substantial it's something that everybody should pursue when you get to that point you got to do something with the cash flow you could try and reinvest it sometimes the business is not an appropriate vehicle it can't provide the yield on the cash flow and so you think about deploying those assets and resources elsewhere how do you think about buying more properties leaning into investing versus growing the management company
0: <laughs> so that's actually been a question I've been racking my brain with lately Lately, just interacting with a lot of the brokers here um, at the conference. Um, it's uh, I don't have I don't know yet. I'm, I'm still debating that now. Um, me and my wife, we are expanding our rental portfolio. We have um, you know, we're, we're in a pretty good position where owners come to us with a divorce or come with a death of a family member. They need out or a crazy terrible tenant that they had. And we inherited the situation was a recent one and I'll buy the property from them. You know, I do it outside of my management company, but, um, I've purchased several homes in the last year from the owners, either owner financing them or, you know, just cash and then, you know, burst strategy later on. Um, but so I'm, I'm, my long-term wealth plan is to grow our, our investment portfolio more and more and more. Um, and so I'm actually closing on the, the third property from an owner uh hopefully Monday. Um it's a sixplex. Um and so we're kind of scaling up that way. But um we're now that we've we've changed as a company in the last really two years. We really focused on profitability and really paying attention to that and NARPAM standards and and really start benchmarking ourselves. So we're really just now getting into that. Um we also, you know, had a huge price increase this last year. Um, we finally, it was something needed to happen years ago. Um, I mean like a 20, 25% increase, not one person left. So that tells me it was not high enough. Um, and, uh, and so that has given us the ability to, to look like I'm sitting here in the conference this week, I've been thinking about like, okay, how am I going to market to realtors who are dabbling in property management? Cause mm-hmm. I would love to buy their portfolios. How do I get to that audience? So I would like to take our, you know, the profits from the company to uh, I prefer to acquire some small portfolios. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to, we did it once successfully. It worked out great. Um, but it was luck of the draw. I mean it was just dumb luck being at the right place at the right time. So I would like to deliberately find those types of opportunities. Um, and, and with the changing real estate market and, and the realtor situation and um, we'll see how that goes. I'm, I'm not really sure if they're gonna be more realtors jumping into our industry and you know, holding on to those or if they're gonna
1: see the cash and, and go. From where you sit currently, what's a, a unit count number that sounds like a, a place to be that you feel like you could, um, I don't know if, if maybe let off the gas a bit, but yeah. maybe it would be a satisfying scale To solve the kind of the type and flavor of organizational challenges that you're interested in solving. So I think from gathering from all the people here and
0: talking to everybody and kind of feeling out where the the sweet spot is, it seems to be for me that four to five hundred range um i don't think i want to get to a point where we're over that 500 i think um it's not the size of the company i'm really looking for for my long term wealth and and just income i'm looking more to to probably get into that 4 450 range and then start focusing on more profitability quality more quality properties or quality owners even really and um you know as we grow kind of let off some of the 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 low-hanging
1: fruit there that we don't necessarily want or just difficult owners or properties or whatnot. How do you draw those lines? What will you not do as a property manager? When do you say no? What do you mean? In terms of dealing with owner requests, scope of services, drawing some boundaries.
0: Yep. So we've we've redesigned our management agreement. We do that pretty much every year anyhow, but we've really... um, I guess I've had, again, gotten the confidence that we're at a position now that I, I don't necessarily need to deal with, you know, the the, the bad owner that's, you know, um, constant phone calls, constant questioning everything, wants to have their, uh, their say in every little thing or, you know, review the tenant application. You know, it's it's we've gotten to the point, thank goodness, that uh, we feel comfortable. It's like, no, nope, this is not a good fit. You know, we 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 do fire our owners, you know, pretty much. Every couple of months, if we have somebody, I i flag them in our system that, um, yeah, do you this, outright
1: fire. Do you do a fee yeah, increase? Yeah,
0: no, I just fire them, just <laughs> I'll, I'll refer them out to somebody. Um, you know, the fee we're a flat rate fee structure, so we have our three tiers, so it's kind of hard to say, yeah, just for you, <laughs> yeah, just for you, we're adding this fee. It's the you pain know, in the butt, pain fee. in the butt fee, yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, usually it's just, it's just not a good fit. And I don't necessarily want to be in that kind of relationship with a, with an owner or a tenant. If it's, if sure. it's not a good fit, I just,
1: it is what it's it not is. a big
0: deal. You know, it's, let's just, there's somebody else for you. Yeah. Let's agree that this is just not a good relationship and we can go our, our separate ways and not hate each other and be stuck with each other. Um, we can separate and just say, yeah, it's not a good fit. Nope. No problem. We'll just go our separate ways and you know, go
1: about life, not worry about it. How viable do you think flat fee is now? How do you deal with inflation? Yeah, this is kind of the great test. There was there was some novelty in this business model. Some of the some of the arguments were, it's simple, it's yeah. easy to understand, it's just mm-hmm. dead obvious. You can't confuse it. Now with inflation, right. what would need to happen for you to rethink that approach?
0: Well, I mean, we just changed our our fee structure. We just increased just every. Tier just went up, you know, about twenty percent, and I probably will plan on doing that every year, as a at least review it, and definitely every two years. Um, and I think it depends on too your management companies, you know, your your average time with the customer. You know, if they're only with you two years, three years, you're not really necessarily losing all that much revenue as long as you're adjusting your prices accordingly. Um, so I plan to increase our pricing every, you know, two years. Absolutely, and with, it
1: for existing or just for now,
0: probably for everybody. So this this March um, was the we gave notices in January that for all all customers for the first time. Oh, great! Everybody's price change. Great. Tell yeah. me how that
1: went. It's fresh. Yeah, it was fine. Did people did. people just assume this is apocalyptic. It's going to be a
0: meltdown. I mean, we announced it in January, so every this this was before like all the crazy inflation talk started, you know, so it wasn't like in response to necessarily all the media that we're seeing right now wasn't a knee jerk situation. It was, I'm prepared to lose five, 10% of my, yeah, yeah. I'm prepared to lose that, but I'm raising, you know, more than offset the loss of revenue from those um, with less work. Right. Totally fair trade. Right. So, um, so we had planned it and put it all together and new fee structure. We had already started it in January for all of our new customers. And I had just never, uh, taking the time, um, again, maybe had the courage to just say to the owners, Hey, you know, it's been great, but we're changing the rules. You know, we had that right in our agreement, but, um, I had never done that, you know, so it was, it was new for me, but we, uh, we actually did not lose a single person.
1: You're factoring in five to 10% during actual turn of zero. zero
0: from that. Yeah.
1: How much time and effort went into facilitating and launching that change?
0: uh, more time stressing over the, the, the notice to the owners and how that conversation was going to go. Um, but, um, it wasn't that much. I mean, just once you get your fee structure, which we had already set up last late last year for the new owners, um, and built our plan out, um, I probably would have gone a little bit higher, especially knowing now I didn't lose a single person that tells me, and I even had some people saying, yeah, I've been waiting for you to do this. It's like, okay, well, Shame on me. I should have done this probably a year or two ago. Um, now, knowing with all the inflation and everything changing and the rent, I mean, we're in Jacksonville, Florida. So um, we're in the spotlight right now with rent increases 20, 30%. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the flat rate is, you know, not ideal. But during COVID, um, when everything was shut down and there was no rent, we're, we're getting paid no matter what. So it gives us our staff, actually, we had this conversation a lot. You know, they liked the fact that we were stable. We were a stable place to be. Um, Maybe we're not seeing the spike in revenue as a percentage, which I definitely miss and, and wish I had more of, but you know, there's, we're doing great. So it's, it's not that big of a deal. And it attracts the, the kinds of properties that we, we want the higher cost higher costs, rental homes come to us as a flat rate because it's cheaper. You know, and those are just easier to manage. They're usually owners that take care of their homes. Uh, the tenants are usually easier. The maintenance is much easier. They're not older homes typically. So it's just a, it's it's a lot less workload, which is what I was kind
1: of looking for when we went to that model. What's your take on turnkey? You have the investor background. You have the management background. Mm. Turnkey's interesting. In theory, it's uh, some you know, vertical integration. You do more, solve more problems, lower the bar, Turnkey also notorious for being a disaster in many cases because you have a person that has one competence. They know management well or they know financing well or they know construction well. But they don't know all three well. Right. What's your take on uh, potential opportunities there and why it's not more common in our industry?
0: Do you mean um, like turnkey, like the turnkey investment companies, like buying and selling to or buying purchasing? Correct. And offering, you know, a turnkey experience yeah. where you sell me a home with the tenant right. in it. And... So over the years, because what I've done is, is the rehabs, you know, the dis- distressed homes, we buy wholesaler homes, we buy the foreclosures when they were out there. Um, so that's been my, I like doing that. It's fun. Um, I think that's where the true wealth creation comes from because you're getting the equity versus you're buying a turnkey rental property. They got the equity, you know, they got the steal of the deal and then they did the cheapest renovations possible because they're turning around and flipping it. So I don't personally like taking on those properties and I tell owners like, listen, you it's a flip house, you know, they're not here to build quality, they're here to make it look pretty. Um, So we expect more repairs and renovations than we would if we were Mm. doing a flip. Mm. So I work with more owners um, and helping and coaching and teaching them to buy renovation homes. Let me renovate them, let my team renovate them. And so we have a a process for doing the turnovers, uh, well, renovation projects. So we get a fee for that. And um, we control what's being done. You know, so like a fire, like it's a $50,000 renovation. That's a little bit more than I like to see on a hundred thousand dollar house. But, um, you know, I mean, it's well within our wheelhouse, you know, we, we can do that all day long. And so I prefer for my clients, for the investors to buy a distressed home from a wholesaler or from, you know, open market or wherever you're finding the distressed home from, you get the wealth from the equity of the sweat equity and the renovations, um, then leaving that to the to the
1: flippers basically so in, in this whole paradigm of, of REI, um, when you think about your own personal goals, back to kind of wealth management, wealth mm-hmm. creation, what you're trying to achieve, what are you holding personally within your portfolio? So we own a little bit of everything. <laughs> so we
0: have an uh, office condo. So we, we have about 20 doors right now. So we have everything from an office condo to vacation rentals down in the Keys to uh sixplex quad or... Sixplex, triplex, duplex, and single families, townhomes. So, if it's a good deal, it's 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 fine. Like as long as it's we keep it to residential. The office condo is is one um, little oddball. <laughs> we two own a. Uh, it's called a documinium. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's a uh, basically a uh, condo for your boat. Okay. So you can actually buy a condo for your boat to store it in. Taxes are nothing. There is no insurance, and people—they're not many of them. And down in South Florida, Keys places like that are actually a—it's uh, a—it's a unique little venture. I've just kind of stepped into to see. So yeah, so we have everything from boat docks to
1: sixplex, everything in between. What's the asset class that you could see yourself leaning into hardest?
0: You know, probably like I like. Um, Townhomes for some reason I that's just what I'm drawn to is simple small either attached single family. Um, I, I don't get into the condos really other than this one weird situation. Um, so the townhomes the small single family homes in decent areas, you know, C class types of properties is really kind of my wheelhouse. Um, and we they're hard to find because that is a lot of the, um, first time home buyer type of price point, every, you know, hedge fund and, and, uh, is, is looking for those homes. So you're as well. So you're really competing with a lot. Um, but again, the distressed homes in that single, small, single family is what I kind of my wheelhouse.
1: How would you argue that the property management company owner is uniquely positioned or more advantageously positioned to get into real estate investment than you know, Joe nine to five that has some extra cash. Yeah, I mean,
0: we, we, you have everything at your fingertips. I mean, the vendors, you know, they, I mean, they do do the jobs cheaper cause they want that business from your management company. Um, everything costs a little bit less. You have access to the vendors. You know uh, what you're going to get. They know who they're working with and they know that, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's just, <laughs> they give you better deals, you know, they do better work. They do get better deals and they do it faster. Um, so from a repair renovation side of things, I mean, there is nobody else better. Um, you're still tapped in with the realtors. You know, ideally you're getting referrals from realtors and have those relationships. And so you are getting those kinds of um, referrals for or leads on a good deal or a distressed home that maybe is not something they really necessarily going to put on the MLS or um and then, of course, the wholesalers—same situation. You know, you're just positioned in a spot where you—you're the central figure in all of these industries that all merge into the rental home. You know, I mean, that is what we do. But all the other industries go through us. So, to me, I mean, it's—it's it's the perfect industry to be in. Not to mention owners selling their rental homes. I—I I, I, the six bucks—we've managed it for a year and a half. I know the tenants. They're great tenants. Um, I know everything wrong with the building. I don't need to go in and do um, you know, mm. in-depth inspections and, and guessing. I know exactly what I'm getting into. Um, they need out of the situation. I'm happy to jump in this situation. And um, so you can align yourself in a lot of different ways with a lot of different opportunities.
1: What's the worst deal that you've ever purchased?
0: Worst deal? Mm-hmm. Uh, for myself? Yeah. Um, honestly, I've never lost money on a property. <laughs> Never even close. Um, There's some I regretted. Um, So, for example, uh, we bought a really, really bad duplex in a low end town, low end part of town, and uh, we paid 50 grand for it. Um, I did most of the renovations myself back then. That's actually what that particular house is. What triggered uh, the flat rate fee because I got just sick and tired of the tenants complaining about you know making up mold stories and this story and that story. You know, it's just like I don't want to deal with this anymore, and so I sold it. And um, we did basically a 1031 exchange. And uh, bought the uh, our first uh, vacation rental down in the Keys. This was five or six years ago. As it was probably the only foreclosure in the Keys, but we were able to ten thirty one. So we bought that house for fifty thousand and just you know went. And that was a terrible situation. I hated it. I hated the house. I hated everything about it. I hated the renovation. It was miserable. That was probably the worst one. But that actually turned into you know fantastic opportunities with vacation rentals. So. You know, I mean, that was probably the worst house, but it actually turned out fantastic. Well, so. talk to
1: me more about vacation rentals. Are you yeah. managing any short term?
0: No, I, I did. I managed my own. It's a so I I learned that um, it's it's a whole nother beast from what we do in in single family long term residential properties. And I know the the short term thing is a big sexy word right now, and everybody's trying to get into it. And um, there is money to be out there for sure. Um, for me, I'm a little bit more calculated. And so I've had this conversation a couple of times with people here at the conference for me, all these vacation Airbnbs in the middle of mom and pop neighborhood are just, it, it, they don't make sense to me. There's no data on them. If they're going to perform, why, who's renting these things? Like there's just, there's nothing out there. It's it, And for me, I want to be more calculated, you know? So I'm, my vacation rentals are in a vacation community, like, it is very, you know, reproducible. It's, yeah. It's 80% of the homes are vacation rentals, you know, and you, you have the, the cleaners are lined up the handyman. They all know the game They're, That's the core business. And so it's very easy to predict what you're going to get, what you're going to make, um, occupancy levels, things like that. Whereas the Airbnb world that we're all talking about right now with just random houses in a cookie cutter neighborhood that people are renting on a daily basis as a hotel. It's like, how are you going to predict that? What, what is that actually going to look like? It's, I mean, if, you know, but I've seen people doing very well with it. I just, for me, it's too much of the unknown to, to jump into that. But the management side of it is a whole nother beast. What's the hardest part of your job? Uh, just people, dealing with people, you know. Um, in property management, we, uh, it's very difficult to make everybody happy. You know, you're either making the owner happy and the tenant mad or the tenant happy and the owner mad. It's it's very hard to be in that middle ground to keep everybody satisfied. Um, and when you do your job really well, it's like, yeah, you're, you did your job. You know, there, it's, it, there's no, it's not much No congratulations. To, no, it's just like, that's, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, and then when things go bad, it's. The world you know so it's it's uh and that's the part i think that's why our our industry does have a lot of stress and it's a lot of turnover and um for our staff and and you know brokers owners as well it's it's not for the faint of heart it's it's stressful and uh that's the part i don't enjoy is the um you know the owners and tenants at dealing with those kind of fires you know those aren't that's not i don't think anybody likes to enjoy dealing with you know problems but Everybody's so different. Every situation so different. You just, we get ourselves into a lot of different situations and, um,
1: it's hard to make everybody happy. Back to systems and processes. Have mm-hmm. you had any turnover since you've put these in place? Uh, I haven't lost any employees. We just,
0: um, so I built out my training process, um, recently and I got to experiment with it for the first kind of real run with, in real life with a real person, uh, a new hire and um, it was great. It actually cut down. I was actually leaving town as I hired the person. So I uh, was able to just start the process, put them in. And, st- and I tweaked it a little bit as I went. But for the most part, it was three or four days where, you know, he was set on his training. You know, the, the lead simple training tasks popped up that I kind of built and which videos I wanted them to watch. Property where training popped up as in sequence of what I wanted them to do and train on the MLS stuff. And everything was just... Um, on autopilot. And, you know, you know, that's, they don't need me to tell them which videos it's and, and when to do it, fair housing training stuff, you know, how to log it in, how to, you know, I, I don't need to be there. and I wasn't, I was in the keys. Um, and so, you know, it was it was an easy transition and I would g- give me the ability to be gone and not be chained to the office or to a computer for, for that matter.
1: If there was one thing that you could change about the industry, what would it be? Yeah, I don't know.
0: Uh, I mean, for me, the property management industry, the the difficult aspect is maintenance is the is the hardest part, and tackling, um, just tackling the whole maintenance side of property management, which to me is really like seventy percent of what mm-hmm. we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just there's not great integrations with the management software. I haven't found like I mean, we use Property Meld, we like it, it works well it's not the end all be all, um, property where management software definitely is not fully definitely is not, you know, there really isn't a solution out there for us on the maintenance side that really everything ties into, you know, the, the invoicing, the accounting and the work orders with the property. Like there's nothing that really does that. So that's always a challenge for us right now.
1: Aaron, tell me a story. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen in property management? Craziest story in property management. Um,
0: I mean, we've had some sad ones. We've had, you know, deaths. We've had murders uh, in A-class homes. Um, so those aren't real... A tenant uh,
1: getting murdered or yeah, murdered?
0: Yeah, yeah. Boyfriend. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, um, you know, those are the... They're crazy and they're sad and um, scary, too, for, for our industry. Um, so th- those are the kind of situations that we all you know dread to ever come up and deal with um but we've seen everything from um the fires are interesting we had an e-cig start like torch a house um so i thought
1: e-cig is not uh... yeah
0: if you drop them against the wall they can spark
1: apparently and lit a backpack and torch the whole house so do you have a policy against no e-cig now
0: yeah, that's no no. e-sigs in the house. It's
1: basically treated as equivalent as a... Yeah, but I mean, you can't police that. It's just in there to, to sure. kind of cover no ourselves. We, we've gone
0: with uh, like renter's insurance. Uh, you know, we used to require, but now we we provide the renter's insurance and through property wear um, so that we can control that. So in situations like that, you know, they did not have renter's insurance. Um, now situations that tenant cause accidents... Um, are the owners are protected a little bit more, a lot more. Um, but yeah, I mean, all the crazy stuff is is, is usually the tenant related. It's usually accidents, problems. Um, we haven't had anything other than a few, those couple, you know, death situations and a suicide. Um, you know, the, the maintenance stuff is really where it comes from. The fires are, are my nightmares. We did have a flood back in the day where um, by the time I got there, which we don't even really go to situations like this now is when we first started, but you know, a, a water line broke on the second floor and the entire house was flooded and it was coming through every light fixture, every air conditioning vent to the first While floor. While you showed up, this was on Yeah. Happened. Yeah. They still hadn't gotten the water off yet and they didn't know how so we we try to now teach people where the water shelf valves are um after that one but yeah those that was a memorable uh walking into a home just just water pouring out of every crack in the in the property wow yeah it was an expensive one did they just like tear it down to the studs yeah, all the drywall yeah yeah all the drywall came out pretty much all the floors came out we we start over quite a bit but everything's fixable in homes you know i mean enough money and enough insurance coverage anything's fixable it's not the end of the world um so and with rent loss protection and stuff like that the owners are usually covered and that's one of the things that we, we really coach with owners when these situations happen it's like it's all fixable it's just a house you know it's the hard it's it's hard when it's was their personal family home or something like that of course there's still the emotion attached to it um but um but if they're not living there, they've usually had some detachment. But yeah, the, the repairs and things like that with the owners getting them to break that uh, that personal connection,
1: it is fixable. It's just a house. You know, we can what fix kind that. of rent protection coverage policy do you mm-hmm. advocate for or offer, et cetera?
0: Yeah, so right now we went from last year after a small little tenant caused house fire, we pulled the trigger on uh, property where offers uh, rent, basically uh, tenant insurance, through their system. So it's really a toggle on and off in the software, which is very easy for us. They can opt out of it. That's some Florida laws and stuff, but they can opt out of it. Um, nobody does because it was part of our resident benefit package that we offer. And it's, it's actually a benefit to the owner as well. Um, and so it's it's through property PropertyWare system. Um, it provides $100,000 of tenant, accidental tenant damage so we had a situation recently where Lowe's refused to install the washing machine because of unknown reasons. But the tenant took it upon themselves to move the old washing machine and um, dumped a bunch of water all over the floor. On the second floor, again, comes through to the first floor. Accident, you know, I mean, Lowe's didn't do their job. The, you know, I don't blame the tenant for wanting a washing machine um, to get it, finally get it installed and everything. And But it, they caused, you know, several thousand dollars and insurance picked it up the owner didn't have to file an insurance claim it kicks in before the renters or before the owner's insurance policy kicks in so we didn't have to go through the renter or the owner's insurance we could we handled it in-house basically through that insurance policy so that's been a really really nice feature um and it's a good sale for owner student to
1: know that they have that protection how do you sell the resident benefit package to the tenant very different conversations depending on who you're having it with. Yeah. I mean,
0: right now there is isn't a cell. It's like, will it, will you let me live in your house? Sure. This is a condition of that. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, that's really been our attitude with resident benefit packages from day one. Um, this is just, this is is what we do. Um, we've seen our, we were probably the first, uh, one of the first in our industry to, or in our market to start the resident benefit package. We've had it for, I think four years now, something like that. Um, many of the, about, I don't know, probably a third of, of the management companies in our, in our market now offer it or require it. So it's becoming the norm. Um, but again, you know, with the apartment world fees and things like that were, are normal. And so I I feel like a lot of people, we really don't get any kickback on it. Not a lot of pushback. Never have even four years ago when it wasn't really a thing. Um, we really didn't see much pushback on that.
1: What are you reading right now? Who are you learning from these days? Um, well, obviously here at the broker
0: owner stuff. Um, you know, that's why I came here is to, to kind of to, to network and just see what other people are doing. Um, honestly, I, I network with my, my competitors uh, in my market. You know, we're uh, talking situations, problems, ideas, um, marketing. Uh, you know, we, we have a pretty good um, network in our NARPA Community. The Blakely's in, in, the Stevos yep, yep, of the world. Yep. Yep. So Blakely and I are pretty good friends. And um we uh you know, we just brainstorm a lot together. So I mean honestly, um him specifically actually has probably been one of the biggest uh, uh motivators for me to to make changes, to do things differently, to think about things differently, see other ways of doing it in real life and real action. Um but um, but yeah, and I, I I you know listen to a fair amount of the podcasts and um, you know the the broker conference this is my first broker owner conference actually, so I was have re- been really looking forward to getting here and um, and being around the people, you know, I talked to uh, Matthew Tringali a lot and more remote teams and things like that has um, getting me uh, getting me motivated and, and probably my next step will be the traction and implementing EOS. Mm. And, that whole fun world, because that's something we do not do well.
1: Been down that path. Yeah. There's a lot of good fruit there. <laughs> I'm excited, <laughs> for, you. Yeah. excited yeah. for you. A lot of work. yeah. Excited for you to make that transition. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks for having and me. And sharing your journey, brother.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it, man.
1: Until next time. All right. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing,